0: tickets.com or at our supportive bookstores. Full info is on the KPFA website. That's November 7th, friends. Please jot it down now.
1: And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover, open book. the Poet to Poet series. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. My guest today is Michael War. Gwendolyn Brooks has said his poetry is frank and full-bodied. Michael has a sharp eye and a sanity that refuses to make compromise. Michael War's most recent book of poems, The Argomedon of Funk, received both the 2012 Penn Oakland Award for Excellence in Literature and the 2012 Award for Poetry from the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. It's very exciting to have such a fine poet as our guest today. Welcome, Michael War. It's good to be here. Well, what poems have you brought us today?
0: Well, I think because I write so much in what I call poetic memoir, and um, because my poetry is based in being in different places at different times, kind of tracing my life, I'm going to start with actually a poem or two from my first book. Wonderful. Which is called, We Are All the Black Boy. So this poem uh, is called, Why Couldn't I Been Born a Baptist?, and it kind of captures both the, you know, three different parts of my life. First of all, that I was actually born in Ban Rouge, Louisiana, and moved here at the age of three. So it captures that kind of early p- connection to my life and also the fact that I spent a great deal of my life and, as a Jehovah's Witness until I was 17 when I quit. And also the kind of impact that music has had on, uh, on me. So why couldn't I have been born a Baptist Senseless of harmony, we moaned our druid-spawned version of a lifeless praise-jaw hymn. In the hidden background, silent but loud, some heard a higher being screaming, Can I give the drummer some? The funk sliding round the rims of our ears, waiting to be rhythmed and bluesed away from a monotonous religious waltz. Fantasizing about being born a Baptist, swinging to the hallelujah palpitations that reproduce rock and roll. If only one Saturday morning she had not opened the front door letting them into our project home, I might have been a Baptist. Like she once was in New Orleans, she remembered the fat black lady in flowing white Sunday silk, so bloated with the Holy Spirit, she burst straight through the church door, not stopping running till she couldn't hear the banging of the gospel, no mo. I wanted to be that fat black lady with her hands swaying in the ether. Eyes sealed, mouth open, and hair pointing back toward the pulpit as if pulled by the palm of the preacher's hand, trying to recapture her fat, black soul. His process, dew, glowing with the power of Jesus and burning lie. All I wanted was the woman's music.
1: That is a memoir poem. Definitely. Yeah, you've got us right there. So, what happened next?
0: Wow, what happened next? So, this is... You know, we moved here when I was three, and one of the—I'm going to skip up and actually to to um, I think to to high school, um, because this is a poem that's important to me in the sense that I like to remember where I came from, and I like for people to know where I came from, and so often I start my readings with this poem called Manchow. And it goes: This is actually published in the second book, um. The Armageddon of Funk. In the beginning, I read Man Chow in the Promised Land for the sex, for the fascination with whores. I had a long-distance rapport with whores from the rolled-down window of my brother's first car, a black Buick cruising through the Fillmore where he educated me in the fine art of distinguishing between the two T's, trim and Transvestite. Lessons learned in the underground of the tenderloin, where souls were saved by heroines sometimes decked in rabbit fur capes, but always in fishnet stockings, platforms, and psychedelic miniskirts, spreading their gospel within earshot of the men who owned sweet talk and beat them. To us, they were ex slaves that had gotten over. When not pretending to be the temptations singing in the echo chamber known as the boys' bathroom, we all wanted to be pimps. Pimps and gangsters. We worshipped Al Capone. I drew his portrait and sold it at lunchtime to pay for butter cookies. The sugar did not make me soft. I still wanted to be a gangster, a something slim, a red something, a Detroit something, a Chicago something. As long as it was slim. We dreamed of gangster leaning like Superfly in suede Eldorados, like that chocolate brown Cadillac sometimes parked under Visadero. Somehow covered in a coat of suede we dare not touch for fear of being shot by the owner. Until we had a caddy of our own, we wore pimp shades, pimp stripes, pimp socks, copped the pimp tune, walked the pimp walk in pink walking suits, step with a pimp beat, carrying a walking stick with Isaac Hayes and Curtis Mayfield playing in the background, sliding and dragging our bad foot like a cool Quasimodo leaning toward Mecca wearing fake alligator shoes, stolen Timex watches, and party jewelry, our brims slanted to the side, our minds slanted toward the pits of pimpdom. Then Malcolm Little, Detroit Red, escaped pimpdom, carrying a dictionary instead of a walking stick, escaped the social prison that offered only broken careers and broken heroes, gangster or pimp, prisoner or cadaver. Outside the schoolyard, Black Panthers hawked papers crying, Pig! 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 Kill the pigs! 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 Now, I drew portraits of Huey and that wicker throne, and manchild took on another meaning.
1: I didn't realize so much humor and accessibility in your work. I really appreciate that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I try to draw on things that... People can identify with and visualize, too. Uh, images have a real big impact on me as well as as music. And this thing about poetic memoir is really about addressing things that have happened to you in your life that, as well as the circumstances in which they happen and what history was kind of swirling around at that time. So the poem is not just about yourself but about the conditions under which you know you were experiencing whatever you're writing about.
1: Especially that line about being in the Fillmore, and it I suddenly flashed that, that's right, the Fillmore was once an African-American neighborhood. Exactly. So much changes. Yeah, it has
0: changed. And when you walk down the Fillmore, you can miss it, but sometimes there's these plaques on the sidewalk that reference what used to be there. So, for instance, the Black Panther Party uh, headquarters, there was a uh, an office there on Fillmore that you would never know if you didn't look down on the street and see the plaque. <laughs>
1: Or read your poetry. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's another way of getting at it.
1: What else do you have for us?
0: Uh, Let me see. I think I'm going to... I went to Chicago. I left San Francisco and moved to Chicago. So a lot of my work took place um, in Chicago. Some of it references it. This is a poem uh, called Hallucinating at the Velvet Lounge. It's dedicated to a trumpet player called Malachi Thompson, And uh, it goes like this. It took place, um, the thing about the Velvet Lounge, it was voted as one of the top 50 jazz spots in the world. And it's no longer there, but the spirit of the Velvet Lounge is still there. When Malachi blew his horn, I dreamed of cornbread, yellow mounds with burnt edges on the Velvet's culinary altar. His sharp-cut riffs morphed into squares of cornbread islands, floating in streams of warm butter. Clinging to the ribs of my memory. Speaking in trumpet tongues of passages and uprisings. Ancient pain and good times jiving. Sacred beats and blues timing. Drive by crying and signifying. An opiate inside of oppression. A cratered chunk of bacon-infused sweet potato, chicken, smothered maple pecan, custard-filled, smackling, crackling, jalapeno inflamed cornbread, the crepe of the slaves now sold at Whole Foods, in this jazz-drenched town built of golden bricks and smokestacks, billowing fumes of corn on the cob and catfish, my mind lost in music and metaphysics, reminiscing the Sunday manna served beside my mother's succotash.
1: Mm. Sounds delicious.
0: <laughs> A lot of these poems actually are performed to music. Todd Brown, who founded the Red Poppy Art House, wrote original music to go with this piece. And so oh. that's kind of going on in my head when I'm reading this. I've performed this many times with um, Nafasha Aye, which is the group that uh, Makhlet Hadero, uh, the Ethiopian singer, performs or with and uh, at that time she was performing a lot with Todd Brown and the piece before that that I read actually a manchow I performed to Miles Davis's music often either um, Equinox or um, So What is another piece I like to recite that too
1: but you know. I can hear the music as as you're reading. It's very infused, as you said, with with images, but also with the sound environment. And sometimes
0: it's hard to get that music out of your head. I find myself often, when I'm reading some of these poems, I'm actually reading it, I'm changing some of the words as I'm even looking at it on the page, because that's the way it works with the music. And it's really funny to have these poems, in the, like Manchow, for instance, in a book, and having had to rewrite it to a certain degree for it to work better on the page. And then when I'm reading it out loud, reading it the way I hear it to the music. <laughs> All that's going on.
1: Yeah, so there's that's what's so exciting about hearing a poet read their own work like our listeners are getting to do now. Because there's a certain improvisational mm-hmm. element in the reading of the yes. poem that isn't there when you're just a reader dealing with the page True. as when you're listening to the poet read exactly. their own work. So and we you
0: want them both to work. Yes. But it is a different experience.
1: But we really appreciate that you've come here today and are sharing these poems with us. Thank you. Any others?
0: Yeah, so I'm going to read another piece from Louisiana. So this one's called Back to Baton Rouge. I went back there with my mother and my niece and so we were three generations that went back there when I was in my 20s. And this kind of came out of that experience. Last time I crushed this blackened soil, Roy Rogers was my hero. I squatted and painted rocks red with nail polish, the green ice from a Dixie cup dripping down my chin. My grandfather, black as an eclipse, his Choctaw hair shining, his rusty carpenter hands twisting chicken necks at breakfast. My great aunt's farm smothered in shade magnolias. My father's sky-blue continental, its imperialistic grinning grill, splattered with the state of Texas. My baby sister peeing beside the car. That was Louisiana. A jar of pickled pig lips reminds me where I come from, where gumbo ink, nouveau cuisine and folks in every parish affectionately call me Cuz, bridging the Baptist Hovis schism that blocked our childhood dance. I am prodigal returning to root, power book in tow. Out of place, embraced, my Frisco-Chai-Town artist twang, mixing with their twang. They curl, yes, ma'am, to my West Coast mother. Our lips won't form the sound, the Louisiana in us too far gone. Uncle Elton, I'd seen since seven, asked, is poetry making money? They say this is a Creole thing. It doesn't matter, I envy my uncle's name. I covet all their names. Names worthy of fat novels. My father Alcide, my mother Gainell, my Willie, May, and Bessie aunts, our roots so thick and gritsy, our names circumcise our assimilation so invisible, only the leaves and elwoods thrust between them cling to the southern soil. I am of this land yet lost, an immigrant in old country, only the gumbo feels like home.
1: I love the syncopation in the reading of that poem, but also this concept of assimilation and the concept of immigrant, which isn't usually associated with the African-American community, but it's there, it's true.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's really, it works in this case because I'm talking about moving from the South. To the you know to the west or to the north, and um, in that context, I think it it kind of makes sense. Even though I was just reading um, about Isabel Wilkerson's book and how she refers to that experience of moving from the south to the north or the south to the west, as if it was a refugee experience for African Americans, I think that's a pretty heavy <laughs> reference, you know.
1: Well, it probably all depends on how how much racism. Uh, people had to endure when they were in the South.
0: Definitely that and I didn't hear my parents talk much about that but I was surrounded by it um, in so many ways both through experience in life but also from reading and from what was going on in the news that's what strikes me so much about having written the first book where all the black boy 20 years before my most recent book and that the Issues, for instance, around Trayvon Martin and the the, the impact you know um, that this experience has had on on um, black youth. That they I could take the same poem and put it in the book and it's still relevant today, which is difficult to deal with sometimes. This poem gets at what I see as how culture and art can help people survive oppression, and I think every people has this in their in their history. Of course I write about it from the standpoint of the African American and this is called Duke Checks Out Ella as she scats like that. Duke checks out Ella as she scats like that to Quincy Troop. When Ella starts scatting, she Magnolia planted beside Duke playing that tonal Ouija board, and he swings her that slick, startled woman, you're too bad. Intonation When the Duke do that Survival becomes a god to marvel at, even as a creator of Mount Kilimanjaro. Survival transmuted from Saint sanctimonious, sanctioned genocide to African angels swinging that singing like a trumpet made of clouds and lightning. Dropping walls in a way that can only be called biblical, metaphysical, and the umbilical between heaven and Hades where the devil is an angel stringing sounds that defy atrocity. When Ella starts scatting and in an approaching layer of time, Nina Simone wails of four women after Lady Day cast southern trees in a bright white light that not only dreamingly signaled death, but was death. And we are majestically resurrected by Mahalia. A miracle happens, continues to happen, more than a mere resurrection, a triumph over inhumanity. When Ellis starts scatting because the trumpet man Armstrong momentarily then momentously forgot his words and spontaneously started this ingenious tongue, and James Brown put horns and strings and funk and things, a primal electrified scream all in the same thing, 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 and Papa's got a brand new bag, tells us it is never-ending, never-ending, always something new in a penetrating the old, like the digital ripping-off of the G-Father's analog rips by the hip-hopping Cab Calloways of today, a ghettoized tribute to his funkinosity, to global tenacity, to the Yoruba way that lives in every beat and B-note created by our creators when Ella scats like that.
1: You've been listening to the poetry of Michael War. He is the author, most recently, of Argomedon of Funk. He calls his work Poetic Memoir, and if you just tuned in, you should check out some of his work, because... It's quite marvelous. I wish I had more opportunity to hear your work, but that's okay because mm-hmm. we're going to have you back. I want oh, yeah. to hear more, more, more. I'd love to come back. What else have you brought us? We're still kind of in your 20s, maybe your 30s. <laughs> well, How do we get to the guy that's starting to turn a little gray? Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, it's. Um, first of all, I was gray when I was 22 or 23. Uh, wow. Elizabeth Alexander is a old friend of mine, and she uh, she once told me I was an old soul. <laughs> but, you know, I think the Africa experience is something that I can, I kind of see as a turning point, so I can share one of those, if you'd like.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. When did you go to Africa, and what brought you there?
0: Well, I was first in Africa in 78, and I was there um, through 1982, and basically, like everything else that happens to me... It's through people that I knew as to some kind of a network, as to chance. um, And I knew Ethiopian students here. I would cut school in San Francisco, go over to Berkeley. And uh, I met all these Ethiopian students who went back to to Ethiopia. There's a poem in my first book um, called Siro, And she was one of the first people I met when I was there. I knew her only as a revolutionary with cherubic Abyssinian eyes, so wide open all history reflected in them. She was my guardian angel, two months too briefly. Ultimately, the cold, black, threatening forty-five took subversively into the wrinkled leather around her waist, proved no more protective than a juju amulet. She had never wondered who her guardian would be. As with a Dresdkoyevskian comrade, for her, capture came as a warm release. Men in work rags worshipped her devotion to their self-liberation. Women with crusty feet carrying ceramic jars of waha on their henna-soaked braids saw themselves in her stocky amber beauty. But she was also ugly epochs of emaciated peasants wrapped in land yet without land. When finally they seized earth, she was one of their rough, chapped, hungry hands." When they strangled feudal lords who had ground their ancestors into a fine dead dust, their fingers were her fingers on the lord's collapsing throat. She was one of the crimson flags waved on eucalyptus branches in Revolution Square. She was Stalin's organ throwing a mass of missiles at her futile invaders. She stood surrounded by history makers who only now began to know who they were, teff growers, Taxi herders and prostitutes, mamitas, professors and beggars, poets, priests, and street urchins. Siro was her lovely illumination. They were her reason, her motion, her life. The thing is, is that some of these poems. I, that poem took 10 years for me.
1: I can understand. I mean, it was a
0: very uh, emotional, hard to kind of figure out experience, and it took me that long really to kind of get to the point where I considered it a poem. And a lot of these poems, even about my youth, I write later in life. I, it takes me a while to kind of get through stuff, to get to the point where I consider myself in a position to actually write about it and call it art.
1: Well, that one I can really understand why it took so long, because you had to not just deal with the pain of her loss, but then you had to put her into this social context that made her not lost. Yes.
0: Yeah, and, and, and on top of already taking a long time to do these things, and that's probably one of the poems that took me the longest to, to write, but wanting to, I write a lot of praise poems, And so wanting to be respectful and at the same time wanting to contextualize uh, for people who just seen Her name, most people who would see that would have no idea where it comes from. And in fact, at the end of that poem, uh, at least four of the words are translated, uh, which I don't often do. But people won't know what some of these things are, even if you look them up in the dictionary, because they're Amharic or there's some reference like Stalin's organ. is a missile um, launcher, you know, just things that you wouldn't normally find in a dictionary.
1: What else have you got for
0: us? Well, this is a poem that is also in my latest book as the title poem. I don't read it very often because I I think it's it's one of the, I I consider it one of the more complicated poems that 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 I've written. But this is a poem the Armageddon of Funk and it kind of comes from a period when it, when nothing was more important to me in the world than James Brown. And when I look back to that point uh, and compare it to what was actually going on in history at the time, it really kind of blew me away. So I wrote this poem in two uh, stanzas that attempt to look at when I thought that at the age of 10, 1965, and then when James Brown actually passed away in, in 2006. So this is the Armageddon of Funk, 1965-2006, to the memory of James Brown. And it begins with an epigraph from him. It says, The one thing that can solve most of our problems is dancing from the Godfather of Soul. Watch rebels. A tethered communant walks in space. T.S. Eliot, Nat King Cole, and Sir Winston Churchill die. Malcolm is murdered. The Grateful Dead is born. Seko Mabutu stills and sells the Congo. Che crosses Lake Tangyaka as Tatu to take it back. Ginsburg howls speaking flower power in the city where I first imagined. The entire northeastern United States blacks out. The Voting Rights Act is passed. U.S. troops deploy to Dang Nang Vietnam. Gang of four ascends. My only worry at ten years old is what will happen to the world if James Brown dies. Monks rebel. Pluto is no longer a planet. The sun eclipses. Robert Creeley, Coretta Scott King, and the king of Tonga die. Monks are murdered in Miramar. The dead still play live. Congo holds its first true election since Patrice Lumumba's assassination. Howe turns 50. Jack Hirschman, communist, is poet laureate of the city where I first imagined... Daily, as heat waves since the dust bowl plagues Midwest, voting rights are extended another inadequate quarter. Saddam Hussein hanged. Forbidden City evicts Starbucks.
1: Wow, this is.
0: That was very difficult to write for me.
1: <laughs> I'm sure that was. It was the last
0: piece that was finished um, for this book. The title was done. The army getting the funk, but the poem was just finished right before it went to press.
1: But you knew that that poem was going to be in the book.
0: Yeah, because I kind of see this book. I hope to write another book and get it published, but I see this book, this whole thing about poetic memoir, as as small as this book is, um, that it captures these different periods of my life. And so this Poem kind of goes back to when I was ten years old, and um you know that question of what would the world look like um if Jane frown died, and then all of a sudden I could actually see what was going on in the world when that when that mm-hmm. happened and um I made it difficult by telling myself as a poet I couldn't just take these different things and talk about them, I had to parallel them. You know, so I found things in nineteen sixty five that paralleled um two thousand and six. Um you know, so San Francisco, Ginsburg Howells in nineteen sixty five when I was ten years old. But in two thousand and six Jack Kirschman, communist, um, becomes Port Laureate.
1: Of, that was uh, an exciting you
0: know, day. You know, so each one of these references parallels itself to between 65 and 2006 and so that made it really difficult to write it and try and still try to make it poetic
1: (laughs) well if listeners would like to read these poems themselves where can they find your work
0: well you can just google um the armageddon of funk or you can go to my um blog which is the armageddon of funk.com and it references all of my books
1: Thank you so much, Michael Warr, and we look forward to your returning to KPFA. We want more of your poetry. I want to come back. Thank Thank you. you. You are invited to hear Leila El Haddad and Maggie Schmidt, authors of The Gaza Kitchen, A Palestinian Culinary Journey, richly illustrated winner of a 2013 Gourmand Cookbook Award. This event includes stories by Leila and Maggie, a book signing, and bite-sized treats from the book's recipes. It's on Sunday, October 27th at 2 p.m., Park Day School, 360 42nd Street in Oakland. This event is wheelchair accessible and is a benefit for the Middle East Children's Alliance, co-sponsored by Joining Hands. For more information, call 510-548-0542 or visit our website, www.meccaforpeace.org.